You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. His most recent work of nonfiction is A Trance After Breakfast. His newest book of fiction is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, a pleasure, Rick. We have a couple of wonderful books and a pronouncement by one of America's premier writers to discuss today. Yeah, I I feel like we're uh, in a basement somewhere in our pajamas about to giggle about (laughs) talking about Philip Roth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's start out with books. Daniel Silva is rapidly becoming, I think, one of the great spy novelists of the, certainly of the 21st century and maybe of the 20th as well. I have admired his his progress as a writer, but what happened to me, I mean, two-thirds of this book is absolutely terrific, and Mm -hmm. then it turns suddenly, as spy novels go, it turns Utterly sentimental at the end. <laughs> uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe yeah. we'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, it's a, a book about a brilliant scheme by the uh, a, a team of uh, Israeli intelligence people uh, and uh, the CIA who get in on the on the act. Uh, mainly led by the, the the Israelis are led by Silva's main character Gabriel Alon, who is a I guess, formerly a painter and has a cover of as an art restorer. And he nearly gets killed in every novel and manages <laughs> to uh, save himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a kind of sentimental thing, I suppose you could say, but it's it's conventional for spy novels for that to happen. And it, it, it the, the scheme in this uh in this novel is that um, Alon, along with the CIA uh, helpers, um, devise a plan to turn the daughter of a rabid uh, Saudi businessman uh, who, whom Alon had killed several years back in a, in a mission. Um, they want to turn this daughter to work for them and fund a spy network, uh, kind of like the way they use iodine in, a, in a, uh, a, a CAT scan, you know, so they can where, watch the money go to the people they want to kill. Mm-hmm. So they can see where the money turns up and then uh, jump on these uh, terrorists. Uh, so the plot is really interesting, and um, it, it brings in the world of finance in a way that, um, I have to say, not really as good as... as uh, David Ignatius did in his recent uh, spy novel, Blood Money, but mm-hmm. uh, pretty good uh, workout on the world of international finance as we follow the money. Um, follow the money, right? <laughs> it's an old, the old uh, Watergate theme. Um, and about, oh, three-fifths of the way of this into this book, it's really brilliantly done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alon is a terrific uh, tradecraft guy, and Nadia, the... Uh, Saudi multi-billionaire heroine of the novel is a, is a really terrific character. And um, up to a certain point, the book really had me all the way. Then what happened? Well, do we want to give away? Uh, no. Well, let's just say that after the, after, I mean, you can't imagine 
Silva will kill Elon off, uh, although maybe he will some, some years down the road. But after the success of the mission, uh, he, Gabriel, uh, the painter, paints a portrait of Nadia, and, and it becomes the cover of a, a, uh, a, a, a fundraiser for, uh, how do I say, Let's get, let me go back, and becomes the cover of a program for a, a fundraiser for a new foundation in her name after she, as you might expect, well, Hold your ears if you don't want to hear what happens. But after she gets, uh, she sacrifices herself, let's say, in a, in a moment, uh, in, in an encounter between Alon and the terrorists who are about to kill him. And, and Alon paints her portrait. And it really is just a moment, I thought, of treacly sentimentalism that, that Silva would, would do this. I mean, most real spies would say, oh, it's really too bad this woman got knocked off and she saved my life, and I'm grateful to that. Let's go out to dinner. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when you talked about killing off alone, I've always hoped that there would be somebody would write a, a spy novel series in which, say, there was a titular character, we'll call him James Bond, for example, who gets killed off at the end of every single novel and gets replaced by somebody else who says, okay, I'll take this name. Because that seems like the most... <laughs> well, that's the way, that's why the James Bond series hasn't died, right? Um, the thing about, so, so this moment in this silver novel really makes me wonder about just how uh, how great his standing is or will become. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a terrible flaw in this novel. And, well, and, and it makes me wonder, you know, would, would Alan first have done that? Absolutely not. Oh, Would no. Robert Littell have done that? Absolutely not. Up to that point, the, mm -hmm. his journey there is the setup and the, the way he explores the world of finance, I thought is really great. The, oh, yeah. The plotting and the, the orchestration of the characters. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, when I encountered this event partway through, I kind of enjoyed it just because it's not a part of a spy novel that I've ever read. The event, you mean, him yeah. making that portrait? Yeah, that's, that seems like out of, almost out of a different novel. And I'm also curious as to where this goes next, how he follows up on the series itself. Yeah, well, he's got to take a few deep breaths because uh, th this is a pretty up-to-date rendering of the West versus uh, Islamic terrorists. Mm. Um, I suppose from his point of view, a few terrible things have to happen <laughs> in the interim for him to find the, the substance of his new book. Well, that's the, ever the uh, problem with the, the espionage genre, how many people... When it practically went out of business when the wall fell, right, and the, <laughs> right, and it, there's another instance too that, that that comes to mind when when uh, Robert Stone wrote his brilliant novel about the Israeli Arab situation called Damascus Gate. Oh, what a uh, fantastic book! He was a yeah, you know, but he was about maybe six months away from finishing it when it looked as though there was going to be a peace treaty between the Arabs and the Israelis. And I thought, how wonderful for the world, how horrifying for for uh, Robert Stone. But uh, reality broke in, you know, or what, what does uh, Frost say? The ice storm broke in with all its matter of fact. And, of course, the, the tr peace treaty fell through and Stone could publish Damascus Gate in the same horrifying context as uh, before. That's one of the things I think that does make this book interesting. It does really 
feel like it's something that's unfolding even as you read it. And mm-hmm. To manage yeah. that sense of the present in a book like that is, I think, really uh, quite well handled. It's and it's hard to pull off too. Yeah, no, no, I I agree with you absolutely about that. Um, I mean, the action and the the, the the portraits of the terrorists, I think, are really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that you know, Alon. Uh, becomes a rather sentimental figure when he makes that portrait. Mm. And I wonder, I mean, you know, uh, Silva certainly takes a stand for the Israelis every time he does one of these novels. And I wonder if that isn't a little bit of, makes me think, I wonder if that isn't a little bit of sentimentalism also. Mm. Um, The Israelis are always white hats, no matter how black they are. Rub magic out and make make their hats by rubbing magic marker on them. <laughs> well, yes, there is that a little bit of dissonance in in there, and and I think maybe that might uh, be something that's resonating, that's running through you know Silva's work just as a writer mm-hmm. in terms of where he's chosen to put his character. Yeah, when you put your character in that uh, kind of a, a straitjacket, uh, at some point they're going to try to get out. Right. I mean, there are other. I mean, you can't tell him what to do. He does what he does. But, mm. uh, you know, there are other certain, as you say, dissident elements or dissonant elements in Israeli culture that uh, Alon could uh, have to embrace maybe in the next novel. Mm. I mean, no, I don't mean that... Uh, I'm not saying Silva is, you know, as maniacally, has become as maniacally right-wing as, say, David Mamet has in, in recent years. But uh, we there's we need a little more of a realistic uh, situation than just good guys bad guys i mean israel wrestling with that whole problem of the palestinian pro palestinian flotilla i mean that is a complicated situation um and would make an interesting element in a novel um wrestling with uh, you know putting up the barriers between israel and gaza and or the West Bank, and the Supreme Court ordering them taking, taken down. I mean, that's a complicated element, too, and would make some interesting uh, tradecraft problems, I guess, for a long. But um, maybe, I mean, my guess is that he's getting tired of Alon. This is mm-hmm. just a guess. Uh, we don't frequent the same circles in Washington, so I don't, I don't think I've ever met him face-to-face. But... Um, my guess is that Alon is going to get killed in a novel or two or three. I know his publishers will be down on their knees begging him not to and throwing millions of dollars at him not to. But I think that Silva will probably kill off Alon, just a guess. And his wife, uh, Chiara, will become the female spy heroine of another string of novels uh, based in the same situation. And at that point where he kills Elon, he'll probably change publishers, too. <laughs> well, this is a publishing intrigue that's every bit as uh, high stakes as uh, that uh, of which the books depict. <laughs> now, our next book is Heaven's Shadow by David Goyer and Michael Cassett. Uh, these are two names that are familiar to different segments of the audience, to me at least. Um, I'd never heard of them before. Oh, well, Goyer, I knew Goyer's name very well mm-hmm. from uh, the movies he's written, um, Blade, I think Blade Two, uh-huh. uh, Dark Knight, uh, Batman Begins. Uh-huh. And well, Cassett, I guess I should know his name, yeah. and I've seen all those movies. And, and Cassett uh, has been a, a fixture in the science fiction world for many years, mm-hmm. and 
both fiction and and science fiction and science fact. And he's mm-hmm. a very he was ran worked on the sci-fi dot com website for a while, uh-huh. if I'm not mistaken. Well, the science fact really makes this uh, a pretty solid novel because uh, all of it takes place as part of a NASA mission to mm-hmm. uh, to meet a uh, an un- unidentified flying object, which turns out to be a space vehicle from an alien, you know, galact- extra galactic culture. Uh, that goes into orbit somewhat 360,000 miles above the Earth. And, and uh, he gets the NASA part. Well, I don't know if he gets it right. I don't know the facts about NASA, but as he portrays them, it seems absolutely accurate that this would be the way the mission's handled. Well, one of the things I loved about this novel was it seemed to convincingly unfold right almost in the present. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Cassett, I, I talked to him, and he's interviewed many astronauts. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things I really liked about this book was that you really had to feel that the astronaut characters, their characterizations, he really got that solidly right. Yeah. And the kind of you know character quirks that each of them had. Interesting. In the team. I have one little anecdote I can tell you about a quirk and a character of one of the astronauts. I was at, a, at a, a, some kind of book fair uh, in uh, Atlanta, with uh, Buzz Aldrin, mm-hmm. and we were going up in one of those outside elevators, mm-hmm. going up about 40 floors in the outside elevator, and we were both cowering on the inside wall of the elevator, and I said, wait a minute, you're not, you get scared doing this? <laughs> and he said, I, got, I get scared throughout the entire mission whenever I do one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that makes a bit of sense, and, you know, some of the characters here are not so thrilled with what they find themselves uh, unfolding. And I, I, one of the things I like to say, you know, this begins with the discovery by amateur astronomers of something out there. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, I think uh, about four or five days ago, we had a asteroid that about the size of a diesel truck mm-hmm. that came fairly close to the Earth. It didn't hit it, of mm-hmm. course, but it came fairly close. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of these near-Earth objects out there, right. and they're often picked up by backyard astronomers. Yeah. These are things that for, uh, you know, a million years of human life we didn't know about. <laughs> the dinosaurs got whumped, but yeah. we've done pretty uh, well so far. But it's kind of like your mother saying, oh, you almost got hit by a truck last week. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, in this case, they go when uh, two teams launch up. And I think that works out uh, well in the book, the way it unfolds in the book. And it's com- convincingly portrayed. There's a team of uh, that consists of uh, Russians, uh, Indians, and uh, Brazilians. Yeah, this is in the year 2019. Mm -hmm. Not so far away. No, not so far away. And I think that that aspect of it works really well. But what I really liked is I think this book is is really zippy. I mean, it's action-packed. But also, they get the ideas right. They bring Mm -hmm. up the big ideas. And as they get deeper and deeper into this alien object, it's you'll know that's alien object. It says it on the dust jacket, so we're not giving right. anything away there. Right. But as that uh, experience unfolds, the authors bring up some really interesting classic science mm-hmm. fiction topics, and mm-hmm. they do it in a way mm-hmm. that is both a zippy read, but thought-provoking as well, and that's what science fiction is supposed to do. Yeah, but you know, I mean, lest I sound sentimental, um, I sh- you know, I shouldn't say this, but it re- I'm, it reads a little bit like Arthur Clarke Light. Um, I mean, you just there isn't that deep resonance that you find in the great Clarke novels. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, this is tremendously entertaining, mm-hmm. and it's 
speculatively provocative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I would recommend anybody to read it uh, just for that. But, it, uh, you know, I've read Arthur Clarke. This is not Arthur Clarke. Well, no, and I think it's a, it has a different uh, point from Arthur Clarke. I mean, these people have written this in the time when Arthur Clarke's uh, predictions are a reality. I right. Mean, it's easy to, it, it's, you know, as you're reading this book, it's almost easy to forget that we have people in orbit above the earth at mm-hmm. this moment. Right. Arthur C. Clarke's future has gone and passed 2001, 10 years ago. Well, we're still <laughs> incapable of building a space elevator, though. Yeah, we don't have the space elevator, and uh, we haven't found any monoliths on the moon yet. That we've heard of. Yeah, that, that, we've that, heard they've that, that they've told us about. That they've told us about. I hate to sound like a member of the Tea Party, but... Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, you see in this, you learn in this novel that the, the whole uh, New Mexico project uh, was a complete hoax mm-hmm. by, the, by the Air Force. Well, so, that's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, one of the things I think that this book does well is to kind of integrate, you know, kind of our fears and hopes in, in a nice in a nice mix. And uh, this is the first in a trilogy. Oh, it is. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. And, ah. And, does and it say that here somewhere? It might say that. I don't know. But uh, I, I. If it I, did, I missed it. <laughs> uh, it's the first in a trilogy. As a as a book in the first book in a trilogy, I thought it came to a very satisfying conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that's always a peril in these sorts of books. On the other hand, it cannot wait till the next one comes out. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, in in this regard, I'm I'm really about 11 or 12 years old constantly because I'm waiting for the third volume in the Guillermo del Toro uh, vampire trilogy to come out. Now I've got to wait for the second and third book of this trilogy to come out. Well, it gives you hope. You know, you want to hang on. Yeah. Although talking, you know, if we can segue now to a a serious uh, literary uh, figure Mm -hmm. as opposed to a really terrifically entertaining bunch of writers. Uh, You know, Philip Roth, who's now 78 and just won one of the most prestigious literary prizes in the world, the Man Booker, um, has now made this pronouncement. Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's just made this pronouncement. You can read about it in uh, today's New York Times. he, he's not reading fiction anymore, he says. Um, and, and that's, I, I hate to say it, but that's awfully uh, old, crotchety, old mannish of him. All right, he's getting near 80, and so he's decided fiction's not worth reading anymore. Of course, he's going to keep writing his own. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad for that, at least. You know, the world's going to come to an end after he's gone. <laughs> well, uh, I think I might have to wait a couple more years. <laughs> Depending on on uh, what happens with the near Earth o- object, but uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, one of the things I think that interests me about these kind of pronouncements is they're um, made in haste, repented at leisure. Well, yeah. Although the major geniuses who've made them haven't lived to repent. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they Chaucer on his deathbed renounces his work. Uh, Tolstoy, at the very end of his life, renounces his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, now here's Roth uh, in the footsteps of just Chaucer and Tolstoy <laughs> renouncing his... Well, he hasn't renounced his work. He's renounced everyone else's work. Right. Right? Right, that's a little bit easier, isn't it? <laughs> right. I just realized that. <laughs> so it's not exactly a Chaucerian, Tolstoyan uh, footstep that he's stepping in here. Well, I think that uh, in turn, it's to me, it's it's almost understandable because, I mean, there are lots of uh, there's a 
variety of fiction writers who won't read other people's fiction just because they don't want to be influenced by it. Well, I I have writer friends who say that to me, and you know, it's 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 a it's it's a little bit of a diva like position. Oh, darling, I I just can't read anything until I finish my own major opus. But actually, if you analyze that statement, uh, it's a suggestion of great weakness Mm -hmm. uh, and unsteadiness on the part of these people who say that, well, I can't read uh, Chuck Palahniuk because I'll be influenced by him. God help the writer is influenced by him. But, um, you know, oh, I can't can't read uh, Marge Piercy or Margaret Atwood. I'll be influenced by them. That's ridiculous. I mean, literature is made out of influence. I mean, Harold Bloom banged us over the head with that argument, for the, has been doing that for the last 40 years, and it makes a lot of sense. You can't make a new work without having read a thousand old works. So uh, this thing about not uh, reading uh, fiction, particularly contemporary fiction, I think is ridiculous. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's interesting, though, because... Uh, for for Roth, his fiction is so personal. I mean, his fiction is all very personal. He, he, every work of his really seems to derive directly from the core of Philip Roth coming out at you like a roiling wave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's not a man. I mean, he he treats history, but he doesn't necessarily write something like in the way, for example, that Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. He's mm-hmm. not going to be writing a War and Peace, right. 580 characters. He's going to write uh, one character who's as obnoxious as 580 characters. Although I, although I have to confess, as I was writing my my uh, new novel about Jewish slaveholders mm-hmm. in South Carolina, I wrote in fear that Roth was working on something similar because uh, you know I, I thought he's the only one who could be any uh, challenge to... Uh, me taking on that material. So I'm glad I got that out of the way first. <laughs> but I, I think, too, that um, this idea that he's only going to read nonfiction might just be a way of for him to uh, embrace the world in a different manner. I mean, you know, it's the way what we read is, uh, is the way we embrace the world, I think. Mm-hmm. No, and, I'd agree. And, That's an interesting way to put it. And that by just embracing the world in a very dry manner, his fiction has been, <clears throat> in contrast, I, to my mind, some of the wettest fiction there is mm-hmm. in terms of just dumping a pure personality dump out there mm-hmm. and all its un, often unappealing glory. It's, it's The people may be unappealing. The art is peerless. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, maybe this is kind of a reflection of in a sense, a, an acknowledgement of what I've done. I've spent the last, you know, much of my life giving you my raw psyche. I can't, I can't take anybody else's. Yeah. I can barely handle my own. Yeah, but when you think about it, um, I mean, saying you're not going to read fiction is really saying you're not going to read poetry. Mm. And imagine a life without reading poetry. Um, I, I think he's either condemned himself to uh, the end of a lifetime that already seems remote and frigid and set apart from ordinary people's lives, uh, or at least he's sent himself into exile from the world of ordinary people and ordinary situations and the deep emotions that everybody feels uh, for maybe two, three, four years. And then we'll, he'll come back when he's 80 and say, I'm reading fiction again. Everybody read fiction. <laughs> 
Well, I think it, what interests me, you're right about his remoteness when you uh, read the interview with him. He lives in a very remote part of uh, Connecticut, and, and just the whole description of, of the way he lives and the way he writes, at least when he's in Connecticut, you do have that feeling of him withdrawing. And Yeah, I mean, I've met him only a couple of times. He's been very charming, but the situations have been that he's, it, it's where he has won a major prize, and he's about to be awarded the prize, which would put any writer in good spirits, but he seemed to be in very good spirits on those occasions. One thing he said in this interview that we all have to wrestle with, he says he, he's not reading fiction and he believes that fiction is fading as a cultural attraction and it's going to become a, a cultic activity. Uh, and I've thought that for a long time. I mean, my greatest fear is the novel, writing a novel will be like writing a sonnet. Um, you, know, how, you know, whether 12,000 people in the world who want to read someone's new sonnet Maybe there'll be 50,000 people in the world who want to read someone's new novel. If it was uh, Chuck Palahniuk's on it, there would be about 5 million people who would <laughs> buy it in the first edition. So you have to... Uh... But, you know, Roth has held this narrow view uh, for a long time, and he's made some great sense talking about it when he talks about how in any country, no matter how large the population, only about 3% of the population is made up of serious fiction readers. I guess he's reducing that number to 0.5 now. Mm. I think the <clears throat> death of the novel has been uh, greatly exaggerated with, in, in fiction in general. Yeah, I mean, and it, but it's usually uh, defended by uh, great who... novelists. <laughs> so this is an unusual situation. This is a kind of kamikaze statement by Roth, isn't it? I guess, yes. It's a uh, uh, seppuku, <laughs> literary seppuku. Well, which sense. is what in Japan people do in order to uh, wipe out a lifetime of dishonor and and uh, ungentlemanly actions uh, in one fell swoop cutting out your own bowels you become a great hero uh, well i mean uh, many of ross characters uh, would uh, would have benefited from seppuku well all of this you know talk aside mm -hmm. uh, i can't wait for the next roth oh no boy and nemesis was just i thought magnificent little novella i mean for for not being a giant novel, it really has a giant uh, yeah. reach to it. So I say, Phil, you may not read your next novel, but I want to read it. <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to read it. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. He's the book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.